Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Lyra Fry. We're glad you could join us. For those of you who don't know, Lyra is the director of all SMDC public affairs, which means no shenanigans this episode. Hey, I'm all for shenanigans, Ron. At least that's what I tell myself. Although you may have a different perspective working with me every day. Podcasts should be fun, right? Well, that's up to you. Alan, Melissa, First Sergeant Sagan, and me. And all the others have had fun doing the various episodes. I hope you will too. Anyway, let's give the folks a quick heads up. Highlighting people first, we're going to hear from SMDC's 2021 Best Warriors, our command chaplain to celebrate the Chaplain Corps anniversary, and from a space soldier who got to meet a very special distinguished visitor to talk about military one source. First Sergeant Sagan brings us another great history moment, and we talk with the rarest of the rare, Command Chief Warrant Officer CW5 Wesley Cleese about the Warrant Officer birthday, July 9, in the Cool Job segment. All this and more, so stick around. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It's July 2021, and this is Episode 9 of The High Ground, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's monthly signature podcast. Hey, to begin, I'd like to remind our listeners that SMDC is now on Instagram, so please be sure to follow us there as well. Okay, Lyra, riddle me this. SMDC is already on Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, Divid, Spotify, LinkedIn, Army.mil, and several other locations. Why Instagram? What's different from what they'll find on our other platforms? Instagram is like a simplified version of Facebook. Users want great images and videos, which gives us an opportunity to share unique content focused on space and missile defense. Only our best gets used on Instagram. Also, people who use Instagram are among the most likely to be active on other social media networks like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, which makes it more likely that they'll share our content. Another huge point, 25 to 34-year-olds represent the largest audience on Instagram, followed closely by the 18 to 24-year-old age group. Audiences both SMDC and the Army are trying to reach. Next, we're going to Colorado Springs to Sergeant First Class Aaron Rodstad, who covered SMDC's 2021 Best Warrior Competition and had the opportunity to talk with this year's winners. The 53rd Signal Battalion came with a strong showing for SMDC's Best Warrior Competition this year. Staff Sergeant Bradley Koss, satellite communications operator of Bravo Company, 53rd Signal Battalion, and Specialist Adam Gellert, also a satellite communications operator of Alpha Company, 53rd Signal Battalion, U.S. Army Satellite Operations Brigade, recently won SMDC's annual Best Warrior Competition in the non-commissioned officer category and soldier category, respectively. The competition tests soldiers on their aptitude through board interviews, physical fitness tests, written exams, urban warfare simulations, and other soldier tasks and drills relevant to the Army's operating environment. Staff Sergeant Koss, looking like an extra out of Band of Brothers, decked out in the new Army Green World War II throwback uniform, comes across as a well-composed, physically fit professional, and looks all the part of being a best warrior. 
Specialist Gellart's calm, cool demeanor and presence clearly impressed the judges, as well as his all-around soldier skills. I got the opportunity to sit down with both soldiers hours before they won to get some insight on SMDC's newest best warriors. We begin with Staff Sergeant Koss, who joined the Army at age 19 in 2013. So, coming up, I think I had a, a good familiarity with the military in general, right? I grew up uh, in Fredericksburg. Well, I say Fredericksburg. It's really Stafford, Virginia, the county surrounding uh, the city there. You see a lot of Marines, children, and stuff growing up. Uh, my neighbors were Marines, Army, everybody, you know, worked at the Pentagon, Belvoir, Quantico, whatever. So I kind of knew that it was like a viable path. I feel like a lot of people, they have a limited understanding of what the military is. But I kind of like, I feel like for somebody who wasn't a military brat, I kind of knew a lot, right? And I think my original intention was to do four years probably and uh, leverage my GI Bill to go to school. But during that time, you know, I got married and uh, I feel like the value that the military provides is like something for your family is very high uh, as well, right? Um, and I kind of describe it as like the highs being higher and the lows being lower. You know, you can't quit your job if things are tough, uh, but at the same time, you find yourself in positions where, you know, things are really good, things are going great even. And so, you know, balancing all those things out on my second enlistment contract, I kind of made a decision. You know, well, I made the decision to re-enlist based on, you know, safety for my family, providing, and also the fact that I do enjoy a lot of aspects of it. So that's kind of where I'm at right now at, at eight years uh, you know, and I think everybody talks about what they could do if they were to get out. I would like to personally do 20 years as it stands now, just because I, I do find that would be something that's kind of fulfilling. Since I joined at 19, it's a lot of it is just like I'm familiar with it. I've been doing it a while now, and uh, if things are good. Let's just keep on chugging. 21-year-old Specialist Gellart has been in the Army for 28 months and is stationed at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Going out for Best Warrior was something he was unsure about at first. I originally hesitated to go through the Best Warrior competition. The information at the time was very limited. I didn't know necessarily what I was getting myself into. And the preparation that I had to compete at the Best Warrior competition level, I felt was inadequate. At that time, I considered to myself that I wasn't going to be at a competitive standard as opposed to the people that I will be facing against. I then decided to take that chance, the opportunity, to see what I can do and measure myself against my peers. And essentially from the time that I learned I was going to go through the Best Warrior competition, I've been <laughs> working out to the best of my abilities, trying to read up on every Army publication standard, what have you, and just trying my best to be competitive as possible, Sergeant. Where I come from, 25 Sierra 1 Charlie Land, I work behind a desk all day, 12-hour shifts. So having this nice change of pace, being the farthest west I've ever been, I love mountains. So, I mean, I guess I'm in the perfect place for that, right? Uh, having the scenic view, the people that, I mean, the competitors, they're all great people. So I've, I've loved working with them, competing with them. And uh, the events themselves, I felt like uh, were, were difficult and they really tried how well you knew uh, your army knowledge, but I appreciate that, Sergeant. Staff Sergeant Koss expressed his reasons for competing. Your your army career is going to be an aggregate of like different experiences you've had, right? And one day you want to turn around, you want to look at it, and feel like you got the most from it. 
And so when I look at opportunities like this, or for instance, there was a, uh, when I was in Okinawa, we have a detachment of first special forces group out there and they supported or they participated in a exercise with the Australian military, the British military called Talisman Sabre. And they needed just bodies to go with them to act as like obful or bait for them to repel out of helicopters, drop down and, you know, kick the tents down and, and zip tie everybody and find whatever they were looking for, you know. When opportunities like that arise, you gotta go reach for it. So I, I did that, supporting Talisman Saber and the, the SF guys, that was an experience. And I look at this the same way. The best warrior competition stuff is, it's, it's an experience. If I win, if I lose, it doesn't matter. I came out here, I had a good time. You know, that's just what I'm looking for. Just a story to share. I mean, I understand it, you know, if I win it all, it could go a long way towards helping my career too. I mean, I guess that's a piece, but at the end of the day, I'm here for the ride. I'm on earth to enjoy myself. And so uh, one day when I'm old and decrepit, I would love to turn around and look at doing stuff like this, be able to share that with my grandkids, my kids, just be like, yeah, you know, I had fun. So I guess that's kind of what it boils down to, just making memories, enjoying myself, and everybody loves winning too, right? So it all plays a part. Both Staff Sergeant Koss and Specialist Gellert will go on to compete at the U.S. Army Forces Command Best Warrior Competition at Fort Riley, Kansas in early August. I'm Sergeant First Class Aaron Ronstadt, reporting from Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Congratulations to Staff Sergeant Koss and Specialist Gellert. They represent the best of the best from SMDC, and I know their families are proud. You know, Lyra, in the first SMDC Best Warrior I ever covered for photos and video back when I was the 100th Brigade PAO, I became an accidental participant in the 12-mile ruck march. Only you, Ron. How on earth did you become an accidental participant? It was all Carrie and Sergeant Major Smith's fault. I was at the six-mile checkpoint setting up video cameras to film when the soldiers passed by. They dropped me off and went to do something else and forgot me. So like the good trooper I was back then, I stuffed my camera in my patrol pack and I just hoofed it for the remaining six miles with the competitors. So much for never leaving a fallen comrade. And before people first, too, I guess. On the plus side, I got some great video from the perspective of the competitors themselves. You're always making the best out of a tough situation, Ron. So moving along, we're going right back to Colorado Springs and Sergeant First Class Ronstadt, where we'll hear about one space soldier's experience with and advocacy for Military OneSource and how that led to meeting with a very distinguished visitor. It's not too often a soldier gets to meet the first lady of our country, but for one space soldier, not only did he get to meet her, he briefed her on a valuable asset available to the military. Specialist Alexander Katanak, a satellite payload controller at Bravo Company 53rd Signal Battalion, recently briefed First Lady Dr. Jill Biden about the benefits of Military OneSource, a Department of Defense-funded program that is both a call center and a website providing comprehensive information, resources, and assistance on every aspect of military life. Katanak's commander chose him to speak with Biden due to his experience with the program. How it all came to pass was my company commander put out on our general team's chat if anybody had any experience with using military one source. And um, I'm, I'm very open with like my past and stuff like that. I used to be a combat medic in the 1st Cavalry Division before I reclassed. Yeah, into 25 Sierra and became a one Charlie. And um, I was always really pushing for mental health and how important it is and how it should be destigmatized. And so I volunteered to 
talk about it to whomever was asking because I had no idea it was going to be the first lady. The only thing I knew was that I would be talking to a person that uh, at the time, Captain Wagnon called a VIP. So I said, yeah, I, I'll, I'll speak to anybody about it. Now, a couple of days go by and I get called into my commander's office and he says, okay, so here's the deal. The VIP is actually going to be the first lady. And um, I ended up going down into Virginia to the military one source headquarters. And um, I then was asked to give my story about military one source and how I utilized it, why I utilized it. Katanok's career started on a fast note. He joined the army at 26 years old and essentially spent the next two years separated from his wife and young daughter. Before he was a space soldier, Katanok was a combat medic in the 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, Texas. The time spent away from his family began with basic training, then schooling in his career field, then off to a month-long exercise at the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. A couple months later, he shipped off to Korea for a division rotation, where he had to leave his family behind for nine months. The extended absences apart from his family, compounded with the fast-paced nature and stress of being a combat medic in a high-speed unit, took its toll on Katznock, and he knew he needed to speak with someone concerning it. My family and I were having a really hard time adjusting to military life. I didn't know what to do because I, I, I thrusted myself into something late, late in life that it's something I wasn't prepared for. I just didn't realize the types of struggles that I would face being a father, a husband, and an older enlistee into the military. So I, I was having a hard time with like problem solving and how to relate to my wife on how to, for us to get through this because it was something neither of us had done before. So we didn't know who to talk to, who to go about. And we just had, we just had problems trying to like come to solutions with how each other feel. So I reached out to military one source. I, I, I spoke to, I guess it's their version of a triage and without the army one source tools, I wouldn't have been able to probably do it as effectively. Like would I have been able to complete the mission? Yes, but I wasn't operating at full capacity. Little did Katanok realize that his experience dealing with military one source would lead to a meeting with the first lady, which he said went very well. She was very warm, very caring. Uh, she seemed genuinely interested in what I had to say because uh, she was asking me questions and just giving me really positive feedback during the conversation. It, was, it felt like a genuine conversation, not just like a check-the-box type thing that she's doing on a, like, for all intents and purposes, like a campaign trail. The First Lady was touring the Military One Source Call Center as part of her Joining Forces initiative to support military families and requested to hear from a service member who had utilized the program. And I was actually the very first military member that she spoke to um, directly about this uh, Joining Forces initiative and uh, her trying to get more service members to use Military One Source because Military One Source, as far as the uniformed military members, is really underutilized. It's, it's utilized more by spouses and family like that because they do all sorts of things like with uh, family planning and uh, health and stuff like that. But they wanted, they wanted to get the uniformed uh, members more, in, more involved in, in utilizing the resource more. In closing, Katanox simply wishes all soldiers who are experiencing mental health issues of any kind to come forward and utilize the abundance of options available both in and out of the military. Any 
mental health concerns need to be addressed and has a lot of options to support you. And you should never feel the need to hide those emotions because we have the tools and people should utilize all the tools that they can and not feel shame about it. Sergeant First Class Aaron Ronstadt reporting. What a nice story and about a very important resource, Military One Source. It's one of those rare resources that not only has good information and connections, but on so many different aspects of military life like pay, benefits, education, lifestyle, financial, legal, PCSing, and the like. All housed within one website, militaryonesource.mil. And even better than that, you can call the 1-800 number at any time and talk to an actual person who gets the nuances of military life and can point you in the right direction. Next up, our own first sergeant, Steve Sagan, out in Colorado Springs, brings us part two of his series on the history of rockets and missiles in the SMDC History Minute. This is an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. In this episode, we're going to continue to talk rockets. After the rocket's red glare of the Colin Reeve rocket, the next significant development in rocketry occurred in the middle of the 19th century. William Hale, a British engineer, invented a method to spin a rocket using exhaust. This eliminated the need for a guide stick and any unnecessary weight. These spinning Hale rockets were vastly superior to anything previous. Despite this new technology, the king of battle, artillery, and the newly developed rifle projectile was the preferred method to engage the enemy. By the mid-19th century, most European army rocket corps were dissolved. Although rockets were still used in swampy or mountainous areas, they were difficult for much heavier mortars and guns. The rockets were not totally dead. The Ostrogan Rocket Corps, using hail rockets, won a number of engagements in mountainous terrain in Hungary and Italy. Hale even sold his patent to the United States, and 2,000 rockets were made for the U.S.-Mexican War. Although some were fired, they were not particularly successful. During the American Civil War, rockets were in limited use, but the historical records don't say much as to how widespread or effective they were. The U.S. Ordnance Manual of 1862 lists 16-pound Hale rockets with a range of 1.25 miles. So rockets were in the inventory, and I'm sure somebody was signed for them. Across the Atlantic, Swedish scientist William Ung invented a device described as an aerial torpedo. This new weapon was based on the stickless Hale rocket with a number of design improvements. One of these was a rocket motor nozzle that caused the gas flow to converge and then diverge, and the use of smokeless powder based on nitroglycerin. Ung believed that his aerial torpedoes could be used as surface-to-air weapons against dirigibles. This early air defense idea would set into motion new technology and ways to counter threats from above. In the United States, Robert Goddard was conducting theoretical and experimental research on rocket motors. Using a steel motor with a tapered nozzle that improved thrust and efficiency. This design would later lead to the development of the bazooka used during the Second World War. In 1914, war broke out across the European continent. Although World War I was the first modern war, rocket weapons were not widely used. Despite successful French incendiary anti-balloon rockets and a German trench warfare breaching tactic, where a grappling hook was shot over an enemy barbed wire position, 
with, by a rocket with a line attached, the preferred weapon was still artillery. After the war, rocket technology continued to be developed, and as World War II approached, experiments and research on rockets and even guided missiles were underway in a number of countries. But in Germany, scientists took rocket technology further. Successful flights as high as one mile were made in 1931 with gasoline oxygen-powered rockets by the German Rocket Society. Since funds for such amateur activities were scarce, the society sought support from the German army. It was during these flights that the work of Werner von Braun, a member of the society, attracted the attention of the German army. In the early 1930s, von Braun became the technical leader of a small group developing liquid propellant rockets for the German army. By 1937, von Braun's team expanded to hundreds of scientists, engineers, and technicians, eventually developing technology for long-range ballistic missiles. Join us next time as we talk about the Second World War and the beginnings of modern rockets and missiles. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. Another well-done piece by First Sergeant Sagan there. I really enjoy his history pieces. Me too, Ron. His commentary makes the most mundane details interesting, and he manages to cover a lot of ground. Finally, it's time for the highlight of our show, the Cool Job segment. Last week, Ron and Alan brought SMDC's Command Chief Warrant Officer, CW5 Wesley Klees, into the studio for a hybrid Cool Jobs Warrant Officer birthday interview, discussing Klees' career as a warrant officer and the special place all warrant officers have and continue to hold in the Army today. That's right, but I'd like to remind folks that what we are hearing today is just a small snippet about seven minutes worth, of what is actually a 27-minute special edition podcast that we'll be publishing as a standalone product later this week. A little over a century ago, the Army officially recognized an echelon of soldiers that have existed in the ranks since 1896, the Army Warrant Officer. Warrant officers have great responsibility that includes training soldiers, organizing and advising on missions, and serving as the Army's technical experts and trusted advisors. Today, Alan and I are privileged to speak with U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's very own Command Chief Warrant Officer, CW5 Wesley Cleese, to shed some light on the role of warrant officers everywhere, and more specifically, across SMDC's Global Command. Hey, Chief, I'm going to start with the, uh, the most obvious question right off the bat. Uh, no offense meant, but why does the Army need warrant officers when we already have such outstanding commissioned and non-commissioned officers across the force? So really, the warrant officers fill that niche for the Army and their professional development model that allows them for their entire career to concentrate and be that technical expert, whereas an officer is really an organizational leader, right? They get exposed to tactical elements at that as a young officer, but they're really the organizational leader and their career model has them, you know, either being in a, in a command role or a staff role. Same with our young enlisted soldiers. You know, they're, they have a primary specialty, just like a warrant officer does. But often, their career path, once they become NCOs, they'll start filling specific leadership roles or they'll uh, fill specific staff roles that kind of pulls them off the system. And they lose that continuity with the system. So the warrant officer really fulfills that role for 
those specialized teams or missions or units, uh, they are the constant uh, purveyor of that, that knowledge and that experience. Um, so that's really where the warrant officer fits in the role for the Army. Chief, let's take that down just one peg. Specific to SMDC, what units and missions do our warrant officers support and what MOSs, uh, military occupational specialties, are represented? Our, our warrant officers are really represented throughout the entire footprint, uh, from the SMD staff down to every uh, unit level. We got 73 authorized warrant officer positions, uh, six different branches, 11 MOSs, three different compos, which is really important. It's been I've learned a lot in the last two years just being in this position and working those the, the National Guard and Reserve aspects, and those guys do great things for us. The majority of our warrant officers are deployed forward, uh, supporting uh, missile defense, missile warning, and space operations. Okay. Uh, maybe I'm opening a bit of a can of worms, but is there such thing as a, a space warrant officer? Hey, I really appreciate that question. Not as of yet. But certainly, if you think of all the things we talked about so far, you could easily visualize the possibility of a space warrant officer in the future. I believe as Army space formations continue to develop, um, there are going to be opportunities here, probably in the near future, uh, to really take a good hard look at that and, and see uh, one, a requirement and, uh, and you know a possibility of developing those warrant officers we go in the future. Chief, other than Army aviation, there isn't a direct way to join the Army as a warrant officer, right? That is correct. Army warrant officers are either aviation warrant officers or technical warrant officers. On the technical side, qualifications are, are, are branch-specific, really. Uh, but you'll commonly find prior service requirements that provide the baseline technical experience uh, that is needed to be successful in the warrant officer basic course, right, where, they where the branch will really technically certify that warrant officer. In terms of the E-5 requirement, this is usually true primarily due to the experience timeline, but also from a leadership perspective, right? Because the Army's definition of warrant officer is, is a technical expert, but a combat leader. Okay, Chief, time to dispel some myths and legends here in the last question. Aside from the standard unicorn jokes and pokes that your hands are permanently molded to hold extra large coffee cups, a big one we always used to joke with our warrant officers in the air defense is that you'll never see a warrant officer in Group PT. What are the ones you've heard, and what's the truth really like? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I've heard all those, too. I can only uh, share my uh, experiences as a warrant officer. I can tell you this. Probably the best shape I've ever been in my life and the highest PT scores I had was when I was at warrant officer candidate school. And I, and I know when... I was appointed a W-1 January 17, 2001. I didn't turn my PT belt in, and they, they handed me a coffee cup. That did not happen. Maybe I missed the ceremony. Maybe they left me out of it, but that did not happen. And I can tell you, uh, for the most part in my career, you know, I did PT, and so did a lot of other warrant officers, right? And, and you got to understand, it's kind of like the W-5 unicorn joke. Well, if you don't see them, they're unicorns. Uh, and I think we're so small in number, a lot of times soldiers may not understand that maybe the warrant officer was up all night working on a radar system or, you know, where I started from as a W-1, I was on the battalion staff. So I was doing staff PT. But I'd go down to HHC and support the command and do things like that. So I certainly understand that. But when I go talk to our W-1s that are coming uh, out of WOBC, 
I make it a point to them in case they take those myths like you would have as an enlisted, like, oh, I don't have to do PT anymore. Oh, I can do whatever I want. Uh, no, <laughs> you still have the same requirements as everybody else. You might have the, not have the luxury of doing PT five days a week with the battery. You may be doing something else, but you still need to do PT five days a week. Chief Cleese, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with Alan and I. Is there anything else sort of a parting shot or shots that you want to leave us with as we look forward to celebrating this warrant officer birthday in July? Hey, Ron and Alan, I really appreciate you uh, providing an opportunity for me to answer these very important questions and kind of get the word out on the street of what our warrant officers provide for the Army. Um, I would really like to take this time and speak to uh, all of our warrant officers. At, coming up on July 9th is our 103rd warrant officer birthday. And to take the time and reflect back on our history. You know, you got to understand where you came from get where we need to be in the future. And it's important that if you're a warrant officer that you understand that history. And for the general audience, I really appreciate your time and kind of understanding what value our warrant officers bring to the Army. Ron, that was a nice sample of the full-length episode where you and Alan went into much greater detail, talking with Cleese about his experiences, the criteria to become a warrant officer, history of the cohort, and of course, a couple of good, so there I was, stories. And if anyone can tell a good, so there I was story, it's Chief Cleese. But as you say, it was much more than that, and Alan and I not only had fun doing the interview with Chief, he's a pretty animated character, but even after 30 years in the Army, I still learned a thing or two. For Alan, I know it was eye-opening, getting to hear about who warrant officers are and their role in the Army. Well, he couldn't have had a better first exposure than talking with Chief Cleese. Chief Cleese will be out in Colorado Springs for the SMDC Warrant Officer Birthday Festivities coming up on 9 July. So be sure to attend and visit with him. I'm sure he'd appreciate it if everyone would take a listen to his special edition podcast and mention it when you see him. For those warrant officers in the command, we highly encourage you to listen in. Who knows? Chief Cleese may even quiz you. Lyra, before we finish up with our upcoming events, I've actually got a short piece I'd like to play. We've got another special birthday or anniversary coming up in July, and that's the Chaplain Corps birthday. What Ron's referring to is his discussion with SMDC's command chaplain, Colonel Mark Frederick. Like Chief Cleese's piece, Ron edited the full-length interview to a little less than four minutes to give you a small taste of what the upcoming special edition will include. The Chaplain Corps has a very long history that was started in July the 29th, 1775. It's actually the second oldest corps in the Army. We've had over seven Medal of Honor recipients that are chaplains. So the chaplains have stormed the beach of Normandy. They have been with the soldiers in many different combat situations, and many have lost their lives in serving our country. I think that's one of the keys of being a chaplain, is that you want to be out there uh, ministering to the soldiers and families. We have a long history. Uh, you can go back you know, to World War II when the four chaplains were on the USAT Dorchester and was torpedoed by the German submarines. And these four chaplains, George Fox, Alexander Good, 
John Washington and Clark Poling, all of different, different denominations were on that ship. And because of the, torpe the torpedo, the ship was sinking, and around 900 people were on that ship. And these four chaplains were willing to give up their own life vest to give to other individuals so that they could live. And these four chaplains died, uh, you know, for the sake of those that were with them. So I think that's kind of the mentality of a chaplain. We, we're there for the soldiers and for the families and for the civilians. Uh, we are not only a chaplain that represents our faith group, but we're also a, a staff officer. And so we have leadership responsibilities uh, in the role of a staff officer as well as a chaplain. So a chaplain should be a good leader, not just a minister, but also a, a staff officer. We don't have command authority. We don't bear arms but we provide a service that is unique to the Army. And we have been around since George Washington, which I think is uh, very important. So that is our heritage. Uh, it comes, again, after 246 years of history of the U.S. chaplaincy. And, you know, we have been in every battle. We have been in every situation where soldiers have put their lives on the line. And so we are really proud of our heritage. We're really proud of our legacy, and we want to continue that um, as long as possible. And again, that is just a tiny fraction I clipped near the end of our 28-minute full-length interview, where he not only talks more about the history of the Chaplain Corps, but his own personal journey as a soldier and chaplain, the requirements to become a chaplain, and the duties and responsibilities of a chaplain, both spiritual and non-religious. Please be sure to look for that when we publish it a little later this month in celebration of the core anniversary, 29 July. Well, Ron, that about does it for Episode 9. What do we have coming up for our listeners between now and the next monthly episode? On 9 July, Lieutenant General Carbler will host Army Capability Manager for Space and High Altitude Change of Charter. On 29 July, we'll celebrate the Chaplain Corps anniversary with an SMDC prayer breakfast at the Summit on Redstone Arsenal. Get your tickets now from Anna Lynch and April Kimmett. Finally, it's time to register for the Space and Missile Defense Symposium, August 10th through the 13th in Huntsville, Alabama. Lieutenant General Carbler will be one of the keynote speakers, along with the commanders of U.S. STRATCOM and U.S. NORTHCOM. And let me see, is that the, yep, that's the last item for us this month. Lyra, thanks for joining me down here in the trenches uh, with the rest of your PAO peeps. Really appreciate you taking the time to learn how we get this done. Hey, I had a great time, Ron. Thanks for letting me do this. And maybe someday you'll ask me again, even without all the shenanigans. I think we had a, had a good time putting it all together. And for our listeners, to find out the latest on SMDC soldiers and units around the globe in our 23 locations across 11 time zones, check out our webpage at www.smdc.army.mil for links to our social media and podcasts. From the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Lyra Fry. Thanks for listening. This is SMDC.